It's a happy new year symbol. <laughs> hey. Yin and yang. So this is 2023. It is. It looks. <laughs> it's better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so what do you think about this? This defies gravity. Can you see it? Mm-hmm. So you push on it. It stays up there. I meant when I push on it. Oh, okay. I heard you. But it's almost too small to see, but there's a little string going from here up to here. Uh-huh. And that string is holding this up. And then there are three strings around the outside holding it down. These outside strings keep it from tipping, but the middle one's holding it up. So it looks like it's defying gravity. Isn't that amazing? It's really neat. Yeah. It really is. Hmm. Inventioneers. Mm-hmm. Somebody invented this. I'm thinking about making a great big one. That'd be neat. You'll put think. in your office. But you look at it, you think, well, what holds it up? And this brace with the little string coming down holds this point up. And this can't tip over because of these other strings. And it kind of works. You know, that's how a spinning top works that levitates. You've seen those little spinning mm-hmm. tops? You spin it. When you spin, you get centrifugal force, so it can't tip over. Remember the big wheel? Uh-huh. If you get a wheel, bicycle wheel, and you get it spinning fast, and you try to turn it, it won't turn because of centrifugal force. Learning about the laws of science and physics can do amazing things. And this is what Dr. John was showing us. That is a neat cube. It is a neat cube. That is really neat. And you know, I'll bet the control circuitry that's making that stand up like that is the same as what they use in a drone. Because they're analyzing the three axes, so the same little computer could control that. Inventioneers are so clever, <laughs> aren't they? they are. So what's your big plan this year? <laughs> you don't think a, I'm being serious, do you? I, I know you're being serious. Okay, so, so what's your big plan this year? I'm gonna film a new course. That's right, tell mm-hmm. us about it. It's called Social Emotional. Intelligence, that's my name for it right now. It's a whole new outlook on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so really. tell me tell me more about it. What what's gonna be special and featured this year? You know, the part that you haven't announced yet. <laughs> Science lives where it's we like learn about these things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So it's Yeah, it's yeah. gonna be about butterflies. Yeah. Fire tell, angel butterflies. Fire Angel, the Fire Angel Butterfly. Yes, the Blue Butterfly. And it's going to be social? Mm-hmm. This is when you put on your glasses. I didn't know I had glasses. They're safety glasses for your new course. <laughs> I love it. What? Grandma. You fa- okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Those are awesome. I'll just keep wearing them. What do you think? I like it, yeah. <laughs> so if I look through these, and I will be social all the time. Can I come over by you? <laughs> yes. I might bite. Not too hard. <laughs> it's because I can't see those people over there. That's true. Drop me yeah. a scoot over. Okay, so 
Did you hear them talking about space? About how you have to have these wheels spinning gyros mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. keep satellites and telescopes up in space? Just imagine. You've got to hold it in perfect position to keep it on the object you're trying to film. Mm -hmm. And up around the Earth, we send up waves, signals like video. They hit a satellite, and the satellite broadcasts them back down to the Earth. Well, if that satellite turns a little bit, it's broadcasting them to Mars instead. <laughs> That'd be kind of wasteful. You know, there's something kind of interesting, and I've got something I want to talk about, but before, just can I take a minute? It's your show. Okay. <laughs> this is not a show. <laughs> this is science. It's your class. Put your glasses back. No, it's all right. It's all right. Okay. So if you shoot a rocket up into space with a satellite, it goes into orbit around the Earth. And I remember, as though it happened yesterday, the first time a man-made satellite was launched into space. Yeah. It's called Sputnik. Remember hearing about mm -hmm. it? Sputnik. It was launched by the Soviet Union, and it kind of startled the world. We had the moon going around, so we kind of knew you could have a satellite. But they shot this little satellite. It was just a ball with little antennas, and it goes zooming around the Earth. When you think about it, you can kind of understand how it works. It goes up. It gets a certain speed, and they have to get the speed exactly right for the altitude. And it's like the ball on a string mm -hmm. where you're waiting around. Well, as it flies, the gravity of the Earth keeps pulling it down at just the right amount so it never falls to the Earth or never goes out in space, and it goes into orbit. That's neat. So if you wanted to see it, you'd have to watch for it because it's going around and around and around in different orbits. Some of you have seen the space station. <laughs> Others of us have seen the trains. I'm never going to see those. You never did get to see those? Mm -hmm. oh, that's not true. I did. One time. <laughs> that was a long so time what ago. Is it? You did or you didn't? I, I did. So these are the little satellites that actually form little trains, and there are illustrious SpaceX captain. Mm -hmm launching satellites to provide internet to parts of the world where it's not available. But in all these cases, they have to get it at the right speed for the altitude they're at so it stays in orbit. When you're going at a precise speed for each altitude, we call that orbit because it'll just stay there. It's pretty difficult to make an orbit so accurate that it will stay there a long time like the moon does. The moon just stays there. And we don't have to go up and nudge it a little bit. It's just in a perfect orbit. But for man-made satellites, it's very hard for us to get them that perfect. And so after a while, if they're going just a teeny bit fast, they go shooting into space. If they're going a teeny bit slow, they start decaying and they fall back to Earth. We actually fly our satellites. They have little booster capabilities in them. And for example, a lot of the ones from the U.S. are flown by JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories in Pasadena, California, which does have a solace in their high school. Way to go. Way to go, Pasadena. <laughs> but they literally have people that sit there and fly the satellites to make sure that they stay in their orbit in place. So if a 
satellite is orbiting the Earth, and you have a tracker dish, and you wait for it to come up over the horizon, and they go across. The space shuttle, what, circles the Earth in about 90 minutes? Is that right? Satellites can go around pretty fast, and if you want to track them, you have to follow them because they move. But there's something really, really interesting. What if you could push a satellite up into space and get it just the right height at the right speed so that it would be going around in orbit as fast as the Earth turns? And what if you shot it up perfectly over the equator? so that as the Earth turns, the satellite's moving at the same speed. And so it would always look like the satellite was just sitting still. Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be cool. And scientists call that a geodesic orbit. And guess what? What? The belt around the equator, which is the only place you can really have a geodesic orbit, is clear full of satellites every few degrees. <laughs> There's a different satellite, and they're all up there going around in a big chain like a ring. And they're in perfect orbit. And so when you see someone that puts their satellite dish out and is pointed up at the satellite, it's always straight above the equator, or it's tracking like this because they go flying across anywhere else. Is that cool? It is. It really is. Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk to you about Two adventures tonight. The first adventure is about a guy. This is a story, and it has a it has a message. Is it a true story? <laughs> Could be. Could be. That Could be. So. Yes. Could be true. Yes. But it's a guy that that really, 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 really cared about his people. He was a, a ruler. And he had a lot of people that he thought were just wonderful. And so he made a grand dinner for him. He put out all of this wonderful food on this big, long table and invited all these people to come and eat. They came, and they looked at the food, but none of them would eat. It's quite a story. I'm making it up as I go. <laughs> and so he thought, you know what? They didn't like the food because why wouldn't they eat? So he had it all cleared away and he went in and got very exotic food. This is the real expensive kind of food, the food that anybody would just love to have. Put it out on the table and invite the people back. Not one of them would eat it. It's getting to be a frustrating story. <laughs> But then he realized it wasn't prepared properly. So he brought in the best chefs. They cleared the food off again. They start over. They used the best ingredients. They made the food not only delicious, but they made it beautiful. They put it out on the table. They used flowers to adorn it. It was just beautiful. And he called the people, and they came. They still wouldn't eat. Hmm. It's a sad story now. And then they died. <laughs> Didn't see that now it's a sad story. Well, you said make it a sad story. It's not my fault. Because they wouldn't eat. They starved. Right, that, that is you know what? And it's kind of a story that could be likened to a cellist. 
because Ocellus is like a feast of knowledge and it's presented by the best teachers <laughs> in the world. And it's filmed and it's just perfect. If a person wants to eat that knowledge, all they have to do is partake and eat it and they will accumulate that knowledge faster than any other way I know. We're still working on that method where you go, you know how to fly a helicopter. Someday we will get that. But in the meantime, we present it for them and some students won't eat. In fact, they'll try and figure out all these reasons why they get through it without eating, without gaining the treasure of knowledge that comes. And I, I just had someone say something very profound to me today. They said that with a cellist, you get out of it whatever you choose. Mm. And I think that's a profound thought to think about. The reason that I do these Science Life lectures is threefold. Number one is because I love science and love to talk about it. Number two is because as we learn about what you can do with science, I'm hoping it will inspire some of our students to eat, to partake, to absorb the knowledge. And third, I enjoy Peugeot giving me a hard time. What? <laughs> you do? I thought it was the other way around. It doesn't matter which way I look. She always gives me a hard time. Okay, now the second thing. Okay. This is kind of an adventure, and it's a true story. So I went to the big table, and I partook of the food of knowledge and graduated from the university. And I was ready now to do my thing. And I, I wanted to do something big. I wanted to leave a mark on this earth that would, would benefit people. I have always had a deep feeling of caring for people. And that was put in me by my wonderful parents, especially my lovely mother. My mother just loved everybody and everybody loved her. And, and she just made me find that real joy and happiness comes from inspiring, serving, taking care of other people. And so I wanted to have a big positive impact. And early in my career, I very early in fact, I decided that the way to do it would be by getting involved in the computer field. And some of you know the, the story that led up to this for me, and that was when I heard about the microprocessor, a whole computer in a single chip. And this was a new thing at the time, and I realized that it was gonna completely revolutionize the world. It, it's funny, um, the Wall Street Journal, which is one of our most famous newspapers in America, <laughs> has written three articles about me over the years. And this first big article was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and it actually had a, not a picture of me, but it had a drawing. And you know how artists can kind of draw people to make them look like whatever they want? Well, this one made me look like I was a mafia hitman. Oh. <laughs> Wasn't very hard, I suppose. Anyway, there I was on the face of the Wall Street Journal. And it, it was not a complimentary article. In fact, it was, uh, it was quite embarrassing. 
the article criticized me for three things. And I, I think I know what motivated the article. In fact, I even knew back then. It had to do with money and stock. Usually things like that are done for money or power. Well, this was done because I had a public company and people were trying to manipulate the stock, and that's another story. But this article really criticized me for three things. The first one was that I was going to give the world a new fuel, hydrogen, mm -hmm. and that it was going to replace fossil fuels eventually. And they really let me have it for that. Ha, ha, ha. Who does he think he is? Guess what? what? We're starting to get <laughs> hydrogen cars. Yeah. yeah, it was 50 years ago, but mm -hmm. so what? You know? Yeah. And then the second one was I thought I had a vision for where computers were going to go. And they really made fun of me. In the day that article was published, computers were mainframes. That's what they were. And that means a big computer, IBM 360, IBM 370 with lots of terminals. And I was saying, no, the day is going to come when everybody's going to have their own computer. <laughs> and they really made fun of me for that. And then I said, and I have an idea on how we can get all of those computers to share information. You see, you can make computers talk. But in order to make them talk, one computer has to send and one computer has to receive. And if there are two people with computers, unless you know the other one is ready to send, you won't turn on your receipt program. And that was a real, real problem. It used to be if you want to send a file to something, you call them up on the phone. Okay, I'm ready to send. You ready to receive? <laughs> okay, I'm waiting. Okay, you ready? Okay, send. That's the only way you could do it. And I thought, well, there's got to be a better way because everybody's going to have a, their own computer. Now, I have to admit, I never dreamed they'd get down a little thing in your pocket. I thought there'd be a computer. <laughs> and so I said, why don't we, I'll take this hydrogen water bottle, why don't we make a computer that doesn't belong to anybody? We'll just call it a server. And I didn't call it a server. I called it a data center in my early patent on this. And I said, and then everybody will have their own computer, what we now call a personal computer. I called it their own user computer. One for every single user. A computer dedicated to one user, I called it. And that was the pre-name of, of a personal computer. And then I said, the server is always waiting for someone to ask it something. So you contact the server and say, I want to store information, I want to read information. And since it's always waiting, it's always available. And then I figured out how you could wire all of this up with high-level interactions so that everybody in the world could be on the same system, the same network, and share information. Well, I announced that at the National Computer Conference, which is a mainframe conference down in Dallas, Texas. And that's what the Wall Street Journal was making fun of that I said you could do that. He thinks can put all the computers in the world on one network <laughs> called the internet. If I had known to call it the internet, which I didn't, there was no internet, it was down. And so 
uh, it was a, a big challenge for me. Now, to do this, I needed to have a personal computer. And so I set out to take this microprocessor and turn it into a, a, a personal computer, what I called a user computer, a computer devoted to each user. Now, I want to show you where I started, and then I want to see if you can help me figure out how to get from there to where we eventually had success. I want to show you a computer called an MSI. And there it is. Can you see it? This is the MSI 8080. And this is the little computer that I heard about. And then I ordered one. And it came as a kit. I had to kind of put it together. And there it is. That's the computer. Now, if you look, and I, I think I've got a closer up photo of the front panel. Can you see it there? You've got all these switches, and you've got all those lights. You notice there's no keyboard. There's no display. There's no disk drive, it's just that. That is the computer. And inside is a microprocessor. And what you do is you flip those little switches on off, up was one, down was zero. You put in one number and then you hit the clock and it would start in memory. So you could put in different commands, different things manually one at a time and you could make the light, different lights go on. And wow. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> this is way before Pong, but I saw that and it was just mind-boggling to me because I thought you could literally make a computer, a user computer, a personal computer out of this. And so I decided to take my MSI, and by the way, there were two. There was an MSI and an Altair. Altair actually came out first, MSI right behind them, and they were so identical they weren't interchangeable. And they both used a Intel 8080 microprocessor, and they used a thing called an S100 bus, and you could change the cards between them because mm -hmm. they used the same bus. And I, I thought it was just really neat. So I took that box, and I said, you can't do anything with that. If you turn off the power and you put in a little program of a few steps, pst, gone. There was no way to store it. There was no way to type in. You had to flip 16 switches to put in one digit. And so I said, I'm going to put a terminal, a computer terminal. I'm going to hook it up to it. What's a terminal? And I'm gonna, a terminal is a keyboard and a screen. And they had terminals that talked to the mainframes. And they were dumb. It was just a keyboard and a screen. There was no computer in there. But they would talk to the mainframe. So let me show you my very first prototype. See if you can tell if it looks like an MSI. Kind of does, Kinda doesn't does. it? <laughs> looks a lot like an MSI. In fact, it was an MSI, <laughs> but I very modestly put my name on it. <laughs> yeah, there it is. But look, there's a dumb terminal, and that means it's a display and a keyboard, and it doesn't think. It just lets you type and, and sends the data over a wire, a serial port, and it lets you display characters on a screen. And then underneath the computer are two floppy disk drives. So you could actually store your program. So all of a sudden, I had a real computer. It wasn't just a little flip the switch and turn on the lights. I mean, even a Christmas tree was better than that. <laughs> but it was actually a real computer, and you could really type in it. And you could do word processing. You could run programs. You could do things like a little mainframe. This picture that I'm showing you 
is actually my prototype made with my original MSI, altered <clears throat> with boards that we made and we, we put the circuit boards inside on the S100 bus to hook up the terminal, to hook up the drives, and we actually made it into a real computer that could do something. Some people think this was the very first personal computer in the world. And as near as I tell, as I know, it was. Mm -hmm. I then put this computer into mass production. That means I could build two a month. <laughs> and I want to show you this same computer, which we call the Billings 404, in its manufactured version. Take a look at this. There it is. Can you, can you recognize the parts? I didn't need all those funny little switches in front because we actually had a keyboard. And the disk drives, you know, got some black fronts and they look pretty nice. And this was my computer. And I had some programs that could do some pretty simple but neat things and you could program it. And so I then became R the marketeer. <laughs> and I went out and started selling. Now remember, I could produce two a month. So I had to at least find two customers. It was one of the hardest things I've ever tried to do. It was a computer. Yeah, they didn't get it. They should have bought it. Just Isn't that the first personal computer? <laughs> they should have known. Huh? They, they couldn't get the idea of why they would want that. And I said, well, you can use it for accounting. Who will program it? Oh, you can program it yourself. It's got a keyboard right here. Oh, great. <laughs> It was impossible to sell. Finally, I had two really good friends that owned little businesses, and they both bought one to run my little accounting program. Only I think they bought it because I was a friend. Because they liked you. Yeah. yeah, it was a personal favor. I could not get them to sell. And this was going to be the thing that was going to change my world. I was just going to turn everything upside down. And I looked at it. And I studied it, and I thought, what's wrong? It works. It's neat. It's magical. It's not terribly portable. Actually, it was really heavy. <laughs> Even either of those boxes in that terminal wasn't that light. But I said, you know, I think the problem is it's way too expensive. It was about $12,500. And... The only way I can lower the price is to shrink it down. And so I set out on the goal to turn that personal computer, look at it again, look at all these pieces, to crunch that into one little box. And I looked at the terminal and I thought, you know what? If I could jam all that other stuff into the terminal, terminal it'd be just about right. Now, the disk drives were too big. They were floppy drives, and for those of you that came along way too late to remember those, <laughs> they were a flat disk that you'd slide in, and call them floppies because they were floppy, and they would store data, and you could put your programs there, and it gave you a way to keep your records, etc. But they were big. They were eight inches. The floppy disk drive was invented by IBM as a thing they would use with mainframes. And it's the best I could find, so that's what I used on my first computer. Well, realized we needed to shrink that drive down. And so we came up with the idea. That was an 8-inch drive. We shrunk it down to a 5 and a quarter. 
and then I could maybe get it in the cabinet, and I started figuring out how to get all these pieces mashed in there. The CPU was just one little chip, but you had to have some memory chips, you had to have a clock, you had to have the I.O. ports and all of that. So we made a circuit board about this big that had everything on it. Every single thing was on. And nowadays, if you want to design a circuit board, you just get your CAD program going and you <laughs> click and drag and put traces where you want them. Well, we didn't have a CAD program. And so we had to use tape and reel. So we'd take these little pieces of tape and stick them on a piece of plastic and that was gonna be a trace where a wire would go. And we took these sheets of clear plastic because in order to make the circuit board, we had to have the circuit board eight layers thick of different traces. And so we made a different color for each trace and we had to hook all those up and it took forever. But we finally got a circuit board laid out that had everything we needed for the computer to work. And then I had to figure out how to make those and that's a whole other story in and of itself. Well, when we finally got the whole thing together, it felt like we had a breakthrough. The problem, though, was what am I going to do for a cabinet? Now, some of you have noticed here that I have a computer that looks a lot like that terminal, especially we're over here a little bit. We could nudge the camera just a little. Oh, there it is. Yeah, now you can see it. So this is what I was trying to make. And I had this big giant circuit board, which by the way, covers the whole bottom of this cabinet. But until you've been an inventioneer and you pushed your dream over the hump, you just can't appreciate some of the challenges we ran into. That circuit board was so big that it was very hard to get a whole big one made without one little thing wrong on it. And we put all the parts on by hand, we set them in place, and then we ran them through a wave solder machine. A wave solder machine is a machine that has molten hot solder that it pumps up over through a little slot and it comes out a dam like, like a liquid, and you run the board through it and it solders everything on the back just as the board passes over. Well, we had that machine, and uh, we, we had a thing we called diver. Sometimes the boards would slip off and they'd go down in the solder and we'd pull them out and they were all silver <laughs> and all the parts were ruined. And we had that happen quite a few times, especially as we were learning to run it. Another thing that's really fascinating is the keyboard. I figured that we want to have a keyboard that was very good to type on because I was hoping secretaries would use this for word processing. And so I got all of the switches that I could find, all the different brands, and I got a sample keyboard, and I set them all up in a big row, and I brought all these secretaries, everybody's secretary would come in, try it. And they would all tell me which one felt the best when they would type. And one keyboard won. And the reason it won is those switches, when you'd push on them, they had a little bit of resistance, and then you get to a certain point, and it would snap down. They call it tactile feedback, so you could feel that it closed. And secretary says they could type faster on that than they could just a normal switch. And that particular switch was made by a company called Cherry. Cherry, Cherry Switch. And they were in California, and so I decided to use their switches on my keyboard. My keyboard went up here in front. Now, you couldn't go down and buy a keyboard, so we had to make them. 
So we made a circuit board for the keyboard, we put the switches in, run it through the solder machine. Little did I know that I was gonna need more switches than they would give me. And I, I don't wanna jump too far ahead, but I will say that uh, one of the big challenges I had was getting those switches, especially when they started to sell. And so I had all these computers ready to ship, but I, I couldn't get the switches to finish them for the keyboard. So what do you do? What do you do? And finally, I had a very lively secretary, and I said, how would you like to take a trip to California? What for? You need to go talk them out of the switches I need, because I'm waiting on them. She said, okay. So she got an airplane, flew to California, and went into their office, and uh, she said, I'm, I'm here to get some switches. And I said, well, you know, we have a backlog. Everybody wants switches, you know. Everything. It's all right, I'll wait. <laughs> and she just waited in their lobby three days. Wow. Bless her heart. And then they shipped us switches, I think, to get rid of her. <laughs> but, you know, you have to really be determined because you're going to run into opposition. Well, anyway, we got this computer all done, all the pieces, and we're ready to test it. But the cabinets weren't done. They were a month overdue. I wanted to make the cabinets out of a technology called foam molding. It's like plastic, only it's a structural foam. And it's a pretty neat cabinet. So I had a guy design it, had a company up in Iowa that was going to foam mold these for me. And they were a month late on getting the tooling made. And I was ready to start building them, and we couldn't get them. And then they were two months behind. Now I'm really waiting on the cabinets. And so it was time to launch. And I had bought a full-page ad in a magazine called Datamation. And I was going to put a picture of my computer, but I didn't have any cabinets. What do you do? What do you do? Well, there was an architect firm in town. And they had a guy that would draw a picture of a house they were going to build. He'd render a, a drawing of the house so people could say, yeah, I like it, print, make it. So I went down to him. I took him the drawings for the mold and says, can you draw this computer? Sure. So he drew <laughs> an artist rendering because there wasn't a real one anywhere in the world. There were the guts mounted on two-by-fours, a whole bunch of them lined up. So he created a picture for me, and I ran my ad, and I want to show it to you. There it is, introducing the new Billings Microsystem. $3,995, that's less than the old 404 cost by about, a, it was about a, a fourth. We had a little printer, we had everything else was in there. The two drives, can you see the two little ones there? The display, the keyboard, it was a complete computer and I was just crossing my fingers that someone would, would want one of these. So the ad went out. We still didn't have cabinets. Please, somebody order some of these. Because now with up to our factory capacity, we could build 10 a month. <laughs> and I needed to get some of them sold. Well, from that one ad, we received 900 checks in the mail for these computers. If you take 900 times 39.95, it was like three and a half million dollars. You know, and for a guy that had about $30,000 in my total lifetime, that was quite a bit of money. <laughs>
fascinating. So now I went from a very serious problem. Nobody wants my computer to I can build 10 a month and I just sold 90, 900. Yeah. That's 90 months production. I wonder if people would mind waiting, you know, five, six, seven years. <laughs> they, I'll just use their money until they. <clears throat> and so we panicked. We went into panic mode, and we started building as fast as we could. I rented out a big building next to my little factory where we could build 1,000 of these computers a month. And I thought, oh, can we really sell 1,000 a month? What I should have done is build a factory and build 100,000 of them a month because the demand for them was just astronomical. But uh, it was kind of interesting. Now the problem wasn't selling them. Now the problem was getting the parts for the keyboard and getting the parts for the floppy drives. Turned out that those little floppy disk drives were the hardest thing of all to get. And I just couldn't get enough. I had all these computers that were just waiting for drives, and I could ship them. I had all the people calling me, screaming, wanting, screaming. We, we set up over 300 dealers around the world, and I couldn't get disk drives. And so I finally called up the general manager of the company that made the drives and said, I've got to have drives. And he says, you and everybody else. And I said, if you want to send me some drives, I'm going to buy your company and fire you. <laughs> I know. That was before I'd had social. <laughs> Wasn't it? Yeah. But I was desperate. And, and then I read a little story in the paper about this company was being acquired and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I made an offer to buy the floppy disk drive division, and I got it. <laughs> and so I went to California, to <clears throat> Orange County, Anaheim, La Palma, and said, I won't be needing your services anymore. I really, you? really wasn't social. But you know, I. It turned out that whoever had the drives got the business. Mm. And I couldn't get the drives, so I got the company. Then I got all the drives, <laughs> which is really a good thing to do. But my point is, if you're going to do a real project, you're going to have some hurdles to overcome. And if you are not willing to believe in yourself enough to overcome the hurdles, then you're not going to do anything that really makes much difference in this world. And that's one of the things I really like about education. In my case, I have people ask me, so how did you get the gumption to overcome some of the obstacles you run into? And I can tell you, I did it when I was a student getting an education. There are obstacles to learning that are very much like the obstacles in real life. Every course you take is a challenge. Now, I did pretty good with the science courses but I really broke down on the English ones. Did you know that English is not logical? <laughs> I, I can handle English. It's I before E. Except after what? <laughs> it's I before E. And so it was, it was very challenging for me to get this whole English thing that didn't make much sense. But as I got through the obstacles of learning different things, I learned how to achieve my goals and objectives. 
one of the hardest things that I ever did in my schooling was learn calculus. Calculus was very, very hard for me. I was kind of feeling better when I read that calculus was apparently also hard for Einstein. Uh, us great minds, we struggle <laughs> with this. But you know, it really would have been wonderful if I'd had a Cellus. I had a wonderful school, and I'm very grateful for it. But no one has laid out the smorgasbord of knowledge like a Cellus has. And you have an opportunity to learn how to conquer projects by conquering courses. And when I hear about people like our student tonight that have perfect 4.0 GPAs, and they're on the honors program, they're taking the tough courses, well, of course our kids are getting scholarships at the big universities because they're proving that they're the ones that are going to do well at the college level. So my point is, study hard, wear butterfly glasses, and come out with a new course. <laughs> Mom? Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> no, actually, just to, we're out of time, but I just want to say that I am so excited about her new course. We have had more feedback on social-emotional learning than almost any other course of suggestions. People say it's really helped them get through some of the, the cloudier days. Everyone has to have cloudy days. How can you appreciate the sunny ones if you don't go through a little opposition? But there's a lot of good ideas, and so we're going to push this to a new level. In fact, we're making the biggest push on enhancing all of our courses we've ever made in our history. And we're pushing hard so that next school year, which will start in late August, will be a whole new Acellus. And the programming team is developing a whole new version of Acellus that's got tons of new features and it'll be a lot of fun, I think. So this will be a better smorgasbord. Moral of the story, study hard. Study as though your life depends on it because the things you'll be able to accomplish, how much fun your life will be, really does depend on it. Thanks, see you next time. Thank you.